Good morning. Really is a joy to be with you all this morning. Uh, brother, thank you for that prayer. You prayed the sermon. So you can't go anywhere, though. We're going to hear it again, but I just appreciate, I appreciate that prayer very much. I do think you should probably know, though, that I, I do have my uh, Go Balls uh, socks on this morning. Uh, I'm not sure what fellowship light has with darkness, but uh, in the grace of Jesus, we're going to work it out. If you closed your Bible, let's open again to Ephesians chapter 4. Really is a privilege to, to be here with you. I appreciate, John, I appreciate you, um, your heart for what the Lord's doing here. Uh, I appreciate Redeeming Grace, uh, the heart that you carry for God and the way that that is manifest in the attention that you give to His Word. We're going to enjoy a few moments here in Ephesians 4, and uh, as we begin, let me pray. Father, it's good as your children to be among your people, our brothers and sisters, as we gather together corporately for worship. Thank you for the glorious truth that we have sung, that we have heard, read from your word. What a gift your word is. What a gift your Holy Spirit is as you illumine to our hearts the words that you have inspired. I pray uh, that our time together in the word this morning would deepen the likeness to Christ that shines forth from this people. And so what we have not, would you give us? What we know not, would you teach us? we are not, would you make us? By the power of the Spirit of Christ working within us, even through this text, we ask it. Amen. 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 Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. We're going to key in on this idea of walking worthy. What, what does it mean to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we have been called? And uh, this is a dangerous thing uh, to preach a one-off sermon in, right in the middle of a, of a book like Ephesians, because uh, if you'll notice, the second word probably in your English translation, I therefore, which immediately, of course, goes out and grabs all the gospel goodness of the last three chapters and packs it into that one word. And so as I was preparing, I found myself getting distracted and uh, uh, thinking far too long about uh, the greatness of what Paul has helped us luxuriate in over the past three chapters, just the glory of the gospel, the gospel as he calls it, the immeasurable riches of God's grace, or as he calls it, the immeasurable riches of Christ, because he really is the good of the gospel, isn't he? We've been adopted by God the Father, we've been uh, redeemed, we've been forgiven, we've been cleansed by God the Son, we have been sealed, chapter 1 tells us, for a sure inheritance that is far beyond anything this world can offer by God the Holy Spirit. And best of all of that, as uh, Ephesians 2, 5 shows us that we have been granted the gift of saving faith, as we are granted that faith, the Spirit thereby unites us to the person of Jesus Christ. We have been made alive together with Christ. We have been raised up together with Christ. We have been seated in the heavenly places together with Christ. And so now we enjoy, in measure, because we aren't capacitated quite yet in these bodies, uh, to uh, taste and see all that we one day will enjoy, but we 
now enjoy every spiritual blessing in Christ, which means nothing less than the life of God himself has opened to you and to me to include people like you and me who were dead in our trespasses and sins. Isn't that just marvelous? Such good news. And it's all packed right in there to Ephesians 4, verse 1, therefore. It's a a good reminder if you're here investigating uh, the claims of Christ and Christianity this morning, it's a good reminder that the first move is always God's. We're going to have three chapters now of Paul telling us the way that we are to walk, but it's not the first word. That's not the first note in the Christian song. The, the first note in the Christian song is always a, a trumpeting, an announcement, a rejoicing in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's the one that breaks down the dividing wall. He's the one that brings the dead to life. He's the one that opens the eyes of our hearts by his Holy Spirit that we see Jesus for who he really is. He's the one who makes the first move. And I pray even this morning that he does that if you're here and don't know him as your Savior and Lord. It's also a good reminder, if you've been trusting Christ for 50 years, that you have received a very great salvation. There's nothing that you need. Now, I don't know what you're going through, but I don't need to know the details of your circumstance to, with the confidence uh, in the Word of God, say to you this morning that whatever you need to endure patiently and with joy and hope this morning in that very circumstance, you have received. You have been given if you have been granted Christ. There is a resurrection power. Well, better, there is a risen one who lives within you. And God will provide everything that you need. It's good to be reminded of that truth, that gospel gracious truth, as we consider the importance of our worthy walk. Paul doesn't stop writing at the end of chapter 3. You notice that? You notice there's three more chapters after the gospel glory of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. He doesn't stop writing, which means the Christian doesn't stop living uh, at the end of chapter 3. We don't stop, in other words, at, at trusting and rejoicing in what God has done for us in Jesus. Our faith works, right? To use Calvin's language, it is exercised. He calls prayer for example, the chief exercise of our faith. It makes a difference in the way that we live in this world. We've seen hints of this already. If your Bible's open and you can get to Ephesians 2 and verse 10, we've already heard, for example, that we are God's workmanship. Now there's the gift of grace. There's the initiative, the divine initiative of new life. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And here in chapter 1 of Ephesians 4, Paul's going to pick back up on that language of working out or walking out the magnificent gift of our salvation. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. This idea of a worthy walk, some of us are old enough to know what I'm talking about when I say it's like those old science scales. Uh, where you put the gram weight in the one side and you see how many paper clips need to go on the other side before they, they balance. That's the idea here in a worthy walk, a lifestyle, a way of living in the world that balances with, or maybe better, that reflects the truth about what God for, has done for us 
in Jesus Christ. It tells the truth. Our life tells the truth. The transformation in our life tells the truth about how weighty, how good, how transformative the gospel really is. You aren't indwelt by the power of God and stay the same. You can't. You you mustn't. So we are called to walk in a manner that's reflective of, that balances with, that tells the truth about the the power of the gospel. Now, we're going to unpack, Lord willing, the specific way in these first 16 verses that Paul's calling us to walk worthy, to reflect the truth of the gospel. But keep your head up in terms of looking at the book as a whole. Keep your head up for just a minute and notice, I think it will help us see what's happening in our text, if we notice that this idea of walking worthy of the gospel is like a banner that flies over the whole rest of the book. In other words, he doesn't introduce the idea here and then move away to, to a different idea. This is kind of the controlling category of the rest of his ethical reflection over the rest of the book. So, for example, 4.17, Ephesians 4.17 he, he exhorts us no longer to walk as we once did. There it is again, right? Alienated from the life of God. So think of, think of the Gospel of John. You, you only bear fruit if you're in the vine, right? Or Galatians chapter 6, the fruit of the Spirit that produces the character of Christ in your life. Walk like that instead of alienated from or separated from the life of God. But instead, as you learned Christ... Or Ephesians 5 and verse 1, be imitators of God as his beloved children, right? He's, never, he's not letting you forget that God's move comes first, right? The gospel indicative, like what's, what's true of you because of what God has done comes first, but then it works, right? Then it gets exercised as those adopted children. In other words, we're, we're not obeying to earn a spot in the family, but because we are sons of God by grace, Now we imitate our Father and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So again, the walk is connected to Christ. You're seeing a bit of a pattern beginning to emerge here. Walk in love as Christ loved. Uh, Verse 8 of chapter 5, walk as children of light. Skip to verse 15, look carefully then how you walk understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the vine. Ephesians 6 verse 11, I think is a related idea as Paul closes the book by calling us to to, uh, clothe ourselves in God's very own armor, as as Pastor John reminded us at the beginning, that we, we stand in the victory that God has won for us. And so, as we're clothed in God's very own armor, we are enabled, we are strengthened to stand firm. And out of that place of standing, of course, we walk with those uh, feet shod with the gospel of peace. So uh, this is important to track this idea of walking all the way through the rest of Ephesians, I think for at least a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, it helps us understand the call here is really is to imitate Christ. In other words, our walk is Christ-centered. It's not like we get Jesus in the good news of the gospel, and then, thank you very much, we don't need Jesus anymore, now we're called to walk over here, as if those two don't have anything to do with one another. You're tracking what I'm not saying, right? 
No, our walk, what, what, is, what is a manner worthy of the calling to which we have received? Well, what is the calling to which we have received? The calling, uh, as Romans 8 tells us very clearly, is that Christ would be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters who grow up to share his character, right? who imitate him. So there's a, 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 a Christ focus in our call to walk worthy. We're going to walk Ephesians or Philippians 2, right? We're going to have that mind of Christ as we, as we prefer one another, as we serve one another, as we consider one another better than ourselves. It's all the fruit of his character. That, our, our discipleship is measured by our likeness to Christ, right? That's, number, that's the first thing this helps us see. And second, the behaviors. Now, I'm not going to read 4, 5, and 6, but you're familiar with it. Maybe your eyes are just scanning over it. The behaviors that make up our Christ-like walk are almost all oriented toward one another. They're almost all oriented outward to one another. The good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them as His workmanship have to do, Ephesians 4.25, with our neighbor. With our neighbor. Look at verse 32. Ephesians 4.32. Sorry, I'm jumping all around, but i got to preach the whole book in one sermon. It's the kind of people who would tempt you toward bitterness and anger and slander that you have to put away and serve them instead with Christ-like kindness and tender-hearted forgiveness. Whoever it is that's close enough to you that you would have to relate to in that way, that's who he's talking about when he calls you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. So just tuck this away. This is like the world's longest introduction, but just tuck this away. A worthy walk is a life of good works that imitates Christ in our expressions of love for one another. That's really good. You probably want to write that down. A worthy walk is a life of good works that imitates Christ in the manifold expressions of our love for one another, our, our service, our sacrifice of one another. In fact, I have a whole bunch of S's that I found in, in the rest of Ephesians. You, you want to hear these? Serving. These are ways that we love. This is, this is ways that we walk worthy. Speaking the truth. That's a really big one. Submitting one to another. Exposing sin. Sharing good things one with another. Even addressing one another in spiritual songs. All of these are ways that Paul describes later in the letter what a, a walk worthy of the gospel looks like. All good works that minister Christ-like love to our neighbor. Did I lose you? You still with me? I'm going to try to bring you back. I'm going to try to bring you into Ephesians 4, uh, 1 to one to 6. Uh, by telling you one of my favorite Bible stories. One of my favorite Bible bedtime stories. Okay? It's called Ephesus and the Three Bears. Okay? Kids, listen, you can get this. Here's the story of Ephesus and the Three Bears. Once upon a time, there was a congregation of believers in the city of Ephesus. And the Lord Jesus himself wrote a letter to this church. Anybody know where we can find it? In Revelation 2, right? The first verses of Revelation 2. Now, you don't have to flip over there, but you can if you want. 
I'm just going to make a few comments about Jesus' words to this church in Revelation 2. He has three things to say. Number one, Revelation 2.2, Jesus wants this church to know that he is happy. He's pleased. He commends them that you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. That's a good word. Okay? This church has a very high regard for the truth as it is in Jesus. This, just, this church has a love for doctrinal clarity, doctrinal purity, for getting the truth right. And when false teachers try to weasel their way into that church with ear-tickling compromises of the gospel, they don't even get past the front door. Right? Because this church is zealous for sound doctrine. Jesus loves that. He commends them for that. So, Did you hear the first bear? Ephesus and the three bears. The first bear, you cannot bear with those who are evil. And Jesus says, that is exactly right. That's just right. In verse 3 of Revelation 2, we see something that does not surprise us. When you take that kind of principled stand in a pluralistic age, the Lord Jesus might appreciate it, but there's a lot of people around you who will not appreciate it. And so this congregation is facing opposition for their love of the truth, for their commitment to to affirm the truth as it is in Jesus and to live by it. And And that opposition goes all the way back to Acts 19 and the mob violence that was fomented by Demetrius the silversmith against Paul and his followers there in Ephesus. So Jesus again commends this church Jesus, is, his heart is near to those who are suffering, to those who are marginalized, to the brokenhearted. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. That's the second bear. You are bearing up under a culture that calls you all kinds of names because you hold fast to God's word. Names we probably recognize today, narrow and bigoted and the wrong side of history, and maybe dangerous, and so maybe it won't stop at name-calling. And maybe we do need to pray for our lawmakers and our leaders. So we continue to have a wide open door for effective ministry here. But that's just right. That is just right when you, when you cannot bear with those who are false, and you face that opposition, that your affection for Jesus in the truth isn't like a flash in the pan. It doesn't doesn't melt away at the first sign of of cost, but instead you bear up and you endure. That does great honor to the Lord Jesus. And so he commends them for it. And then in verse 4 of Revelation 2, the story kind of hits a snag, right? But I have this against you. I have this against you. Anybody wondering where I'm going right now? Okay. It will repay your attention. This is my favorite part of the story. The note of concern that Jesus introduces sounds like this. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, if I took a poll, I imagine 98% of us would hear that very familiar phrase and assume that the love they have abandoned and to which they are called here to return is the love of Jesus. And it's at 98% because I'm here. And I'm going to suggest maybe another way to think about this. 
But that's, isn't that the very common way that we hear that? You've, you've lost your first love. You need to love Jesus again. And that's always the right call, right? That's always a good idea. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, Jesus says to them. And, and we hear that as a summons to love Christ, which is true, but our whole life is supposed to be lived out of love for Jesus, right? And so I want to know, is there a specific aspect of my love for Christ that he has in view when he writes to this church? Are you following what I'm saying? Like, if something is off, and it's so seriously off that he might remove the lampstand from the church, I got to know, what's the problem specifically? Like, is it that the chair is too small, or the porridge is too cold, or the bed is too hard, or what? Am I working the, am I working the story too much? There it is. Like, what's the specific problem? What are the works that they did at first to which Jesus is calling them now to remember and return? That's an important question, and it was one that I didn't wrestle with for a long time. Uh, but the clue that we need, and some of you have already heard it, comes in Ephesians 4. Right? As Paul exhorts this same congregation just a few decades earlier, he writes in verses 1 to 6 of Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there's one body, one Spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Unity, right? Also the third bear, bearing with one another in love. And beloved, this bear has got to be in place. It's got to be just right along with the other two. If the story that we are telling with our lives as a people is a Christian story, is a Christ-like story. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Yes, it's true that a worthy walk requires that as a people, as a family, as an individual in your workplace and school, we cannot bear with those who compromise the gospel. Because if you lose the gospel, if you lose the truth as it is in Jesus, you lose Jesus. You lose everything. There isn't another Jesus that you can have than the true one. And yes, it's true that a worthy walk requires patient endurance. You to bear up under the opposition from a culture that will come against you because their eyes are dark. Their hearts are hard because of the ignorance that is in them. They are antagonistic toward the beauty of Christ because they don't see Him as beautiful. They're antagonistic toward the wisdom of Christ because they don't see Him as wise. That takes a miracle. That takes the work of the Holy Spirit. And so genuine Christianity cannot melt away in the face of cultural opposition. Instead, we take up our cross and we follow Him and we bear up. But it's also true. And I just offer this to you because I don't know which note needs to be sounded more clearly in this congregation. 
but all three need to be present. It's also true that a worthy walk that reflects the, the, the fullness of the goodness of God in the gospel means that we bear with one another in love. In fact, isn't this the mystery? Isn't that the glory? Isn't that the power of the gospel? Not only to fit unrighteous sinners to enter the presence of a holy God with joy, really important first step, but as we heard prayed, it also forms all of those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ into a family. Brothers and sisters, children of God, filled with that one spirit, one family, one body, one bride, one building. The Bible can't use enough images to help us get the point. We've got to be together. So I think what's happening here in Ephesians 4, like in Revelation 2, there's some pastoral rebalancing going on in verse 2. Paul is exhorting a doctrine-loving, persecution-enduring church to do the good works again that the gospel creates within the congregation. And of course, it doesn't stop at the boundaries of the people of God, but it starts here, and then that life explodes outward into our community, and many more are drawn in. The call here is to take concrete steps to love our fellow members in the body of Christ like Christ. Jesus picks back up on this in Revelation 2 and commends them again. You're still loving the truth. You're still bearing up under the opposition that it brings. But remember what Paul taught you. Remember to do the good works that God created for you to do toward one another in the body of Christ. And so walk worthy. So significant is this call to bear with one another in love. So constitutive of what it means to be a member of the body of Christ that there is no church without it. The lampstand will be removed. Jesus will not have a people who love his truth, even if they bear persecution from outsiders, if they cannot bear with one another in love. That is not like Jesus. There's a lot more to this passage to get to, but this is the heart. This is the heart, I think. If, if, you, if we fail to reckon with the degree to which our worthy walk bears, no pun intended, need to think of another word there, uh, our worthy walk bears on our relationship with our brothers and sisters. Now, is, is this a new category for you? Your following Jesus bears on your relationships in the church? The degree to which you are a disciple of Christ's, it does start with you and God, but it must include the way you live in the church of God. If we don't get that, we're going to miss the move that Paul makes next. We're going to miss the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book. We cannot walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by ourselves. We cannot. We must not. So, I offer this to you. Where do we need to hear this pastoral rebalancing? Taking the truth seriously? Refusing to compromise? Bearing up when opposition from a sin-darkened world surely comes? Or repenting and remembering the good works, of the manifold works of Christ-like service and love that we are to share 
one with another as we bear with one another in love. Verse 7. If we have that heartbeat, and if we keep it in mind as we read, we're going to see something glorious. We go from this 14-fold emphasis on unity, one, one, all, all together, one another, and now we hear grace was given to each one of us. He's breaking us back out again. That's interesting. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I'm going to pass over his exegesis of Psalm 68 for just a moment. The point is that Jesus has gone where he is now able to be the giver. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Okay, so you hear it right there in the end, the the last phrase, the body of Christ grows. And the rest of the passage makes clear this isn't merely numerical growth, like sinners being brought home, but there's also a maturity in Christ-likeness that's happening in the body. Mature personhood, mature manhood, he talks about. So the body grows. Verse 16, the end of, the, the end of our text, the body builds itself up in love. That's another way to talk about the same thing. And he goes on. Until... We all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature personhood or manhood is appropriate there because Jesus is the true man into whose image, as whose body we are growing up, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's a vision for the church. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ present in this people. Is that possible? It is possible, and Paul's going to tell you how it happens so that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Don't bear with false apostles, false teaching. Bear uh, up against opposition. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So the the goal of our growth is maturity, namely Christ-likeness. And we're not surprised by that because we had our head up in the rest of Ephesians a bit earlier, and we, we saw that Paul's idea of a worthy walk was imitating the Lord Jesus. We are maturing, meaning we are increasing in Christ-likeness. But does anybody have a question as I read that passage? My question is, who's doing the growing here? Do you see why I would ask that? Is it the individual believer that's growing? We are to grow up. We all are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Is the believer maturing in Christ likeness, or is the body of Christ as a whole being built up? You see that question? Like what kind of what does Paul have in mind as he's as he's writing this idea of walking in a worthy manner? Is it like me walking through my life, or is it a corporate body walking? in its life together, in a, in a worthy walk? I think the answer comes in the relationship between verses 12 and 13. So look right there with me. Here's what's happening. If you answered yes to all of the above, you got it. 
to equip the saints, okay, that's individuals, right? That's you and me by God's grace. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, namely, for the building up of the body of Christ, there's the body growing, until we all, one, two, skip a few, grow up in every way into him who is the head. Do you hear how Paul's working back and forth, establishing the link between these two realities? My growth and the body's growth. Are you hearing it? The saints are working. We're going to see that work in just a minute, which results in the body growing. And as the body grows, we all grow up in every every way into him who is the head. So I think we're tracking here, Paul. I think we're tracking the work of the saints who are bearing with one another in love makes the body grow, verse 16, so it builds itself up in love. I think we're tracking. The members of a growing body grow if they're healthy, right? We see this in our kids. Members of a growing body, the individual members of that body, grow as the body grows. Paul might say, you're tracking, but don't forget the key that unlocks the whole chain of of growth. Those saints in verse 12 who work in such a way that the body is built up, in such a way that they themselves grow into Christ-likeness, those saints, verse 7, have received a measure of grace from the head. Now don't think here mainly or merely in terms of spiritual gift inventories. That's too limiting. That's why I tried to read you all those S words from earlier, uh, from the rest of Ephesians, to give you a flavor for how diverse Paul is thinking in terms of the gifts, the goodness, the life of Christ that we are called to share one with another. It was like uh, watching my, my youngest son play basketball yesterday, and to help them learn how to guard five on five, they wear colored wristbands, right? So the red guy on this team gets the red wristband on, on the other team. And it was, it was a joy to watch them learn, as nine-year-olds, how to start by guarding the guy with the red wristband, but then it dawns on them as they play, I can also grab the ball if it happens by me in some other capacity, right? Like, I can also get the rebound even if the guy with the red wristband isn't going for the rebound. Like, I'm playing as part of a team, so I can contribute in lots of ways, including following the guy with the red wristband around, right? So the wristband is like spiritual gift inventories that are very real, and Paul talks about those in other places, but there's just more going on that we're called to contribute to this game. I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors up here this morning. It's very broad. So, so think, what I'm saying is, think in terms of life in the Spirit, right? Think in terms of enabling for ministry. The, the point that Paul is making is that the life of the head is present and at work in each member of the body. It doesn't just mean each member has received grace, you've been forgiven of your sin. That's gloriously true. But grace in the Bible primarily speaks of empowering or enabling for ministry. You have received a measure of Christ's grace, meaning like his life is within you. His spirit, by his spirit, he dwells within you. His grace, his power is at work in you. Are you tracking? 
That's the point that Paul's making, but it's not the whole point that he's making. Because if it was, we'd just all be over here in our little corners with our little measures of Christ's gift. But Ephesians 3.19 doesn't say, sit in your corner and be happy with your little measure of Christ's grace. What it says is, the measure of the fullness of God is your inheritance. Now, how do you get from your measure to fullness in the church? The answer is that Paul's going to call you to do something with your measure of grace that you've received. Verse 12 calls it the work or the ministry that results in the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 16, even more helpful because uh, as Paul wrote it, the word for working properly is related to the idea of the measure of grace that's been given to us. So we might ask it this way. What does it mean, Paul, for each member of the body to be working properly? You say, well, as you can see by the fact that that word reflects the word I used up in verse 7. We just can't see it here. But what it means is each part of the body contributes the measure of grace that they've received from the head. That's what it means to work properly, is to contribute your measure. And when each, get this, when each member contributes their measure of Christ's grace, the fullness of the head is present in the body. The body grows. The members in the body mature. We need to come up for a little air. You got it? Part of the challenge here is that these steps in Paul's thinking are spread out over a bunch of verses. Part of the challenge might be me, but certainly part of the challenge is that following this idea is so very different from the way our culture teaches us to think. Right? The way that we've been trained in the 21st century Western church to think, not to mention 21st century Arizona culture to think about having all that we need by ourselves or from ourselves or lacking any interdependence on one another. But Paul's telling us two things. You need to hear these two things. Not because I said so, but because Jesus Christ, the head of the body, says so. And it's the way that this church will become all that he desires it to be in Goodyear, Arizona. First thing he's telling you by this connection between each part receiving a measure of grace from the head working properly, contributing that measure so the fullness of the life of Christ is present within the church. The first thing he's telling you is if he's brought you here, like if you're a member of this body, you have a measure of grace that has to be given. It has to be given if the fullness of Christ is going to be present and at work in your midst. We could take this any number of ways. The, the focus in Ephesians 4 is on words especially. Like, for example, verse 25, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members. There it is. That's the rationale of one another. How are members, neighbors, going to help one another grow in the body of Christ? Well, we're going to speak truth one to another. When we pray, when we counsel, when we encourage, when we hold accountable, when we praise, we're going to speak the truth one to another. You have words of encouragement, of warning, of prayer, 
of forgiveness, of evangelism, of thanksgiving, of praise, others in this body need to hear. You have those words that you need to speak. Isn't that what we heard it prayed this morning, that uh, we so often deprioritize gathering together? But Hebrews calls us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because as we gather, we are to exhort one another so that our hearts don't grow cold and we don't fall away. You have a role to play in one another persevering in love with Jesus to the end of being saved. You have a role in that. You have a measure of life, of spiritual life that you have to contribute if the fullness of Christ in his preserving grace is going to be active in this church. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you believe that, or just like the people up here have words to say. What redeeming grace needs to experience in order to see the lost gathered in and believers grown up in Christ, what what redeeming grace church needs is the fullness of Jesus Christ present among his people. And that experience of fullness requires the measure of grace that each member has received from the head. Verse 16, the body grows as each part, each joint with which the body is equipped works properly. Second thing Paul is saying here, the grace, the life, the help that you need from Jesus will very often come to you indirectly. Come to you through your neighbor. Come to you through other members in this body. I don't know which one's harder for you to hear. That you have something to to say or that you have something to hear. But the life that you need from Jesus will come to you through the person sitting next to you. Very very often. Why? Because Jesus set it up that way. The head of the body has appointed that we will each, as his members of his body, receive what we need from the head through the other members in the body. Like, that's why my toe isn't connected directly to my head, right? But my toe receives what it needs from the head through the other members in the body, and so it is in the church. Paul's not confused here about where grace to grow in Christ-likeness ultimately comes from. He he writes in Colossians 2.19, We hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. This is God's work. This is God's grace. God is doing this growing of the members of the body. But how is he doing it? How is he going to do that? How is he going to grow these members up? He's going to grow them up. That growth that is from God comes as the body makes itself grow in love as each member contributes their measure. So you sign on to INeedGraceFromJesus.com and you order that grace that you need, or maybe because you know yourself well, you just hit, like, surprise me, because I may not know the best thing that I need from the Lord. And you, you click that order, and actually you find out that it's already, it's already in your basket, as if somebody knew what you needed before you asked them. And then you log off for like a day or two and log back on to check your order, and you're, you find that it's been dispatched and the courier that will deliver it is not the Holy Spirit dropping directly on you from heaven. Right? But, but I logged on to graceineedfromjesus.com. Yes. 
It's being fulfilled. That order is being fulfilled, but the tracking shows very clearly it's coming to you from Jesus through your spouse or through your child or through your pastor or through your neighbor. That's how he's chosen to work. This is the precious doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Meaning not that you have all you need to be your own priest, but that we have been given from God what we need to serve as priests one to another. This is the way God gives us what we need from Him, is through the members in the body around us. And it's a doctrine that individualistic 21st century Arizona Americans really struggle to hear. And so apparently the first century overzealous Ephesians. We can struggle with this. And so we're going to close by just briefly reflecting on the kindness of God who knew that you would struggle with this. Whether you're struggling with what you need to say to contribute your measure or what you need to hear and hear it as if it's from Christ. Three kindnesses. Three mercies from God that He's given to us to help in this regard. Number one, it's very kind of the Lord, isn't it? Knowing what we were about to hear, that we have to say this to one another, that we have to hear, receive this from one another, to call us to bear with one another in love. Isn't that kind of the Lord? Be patient. Be gentle. Forgive one another. You guys are imperfect, but you care about this a lot, and you're going to try really hard, and so you're going to do it wrong. You're going to hurt each other. So bear with one another in love. This, This kind of Patient, forgiveness, bearing, it's vital if the life of the head is going to flow between imperfect members of the body. Like That's kind of the Lord to start there. And number two, it's kind of the Lord not only to close chapter three by reminding us that, that the church, uh, including this design, this glorious design, manifolds, uh, manifests the manifold wisdom of God but also to close chapter three by celebrating there is a power at work in you that can do far more abundantly than you can ask or imagine. And maybe that's where you're sitting there this morning going like, yeah, good sounding words, but how would this ever actually work out given the dynamics of A, B, and C? Well, I don't know, but what I do know is that there is a power at work that means to see this happen in this church. And it can accomplish more than you can ask or imagine. And third kindness It's kind of the Lord to give His people not only a biblical foundation that calls us to live in this way, in the apostles and the prophets, who've made known to us the will of God for the people of God by the Spirit, but also to give us pastors and to give us teachers who shepherd us in the tricky business of walking this out, learning how to speak with patience and forgiveness and kindness and boldness, clarity edifying one another's faith, and learning how to receive as we bear with one another in love. So because this word has so much to do with the life of this body, I'm I'm just going to close by encouraging you to stay close to your elders as the Lord gives them wisdom. Maybe this is something to pray about in a prayer meeting this evening, that the Lord would give your shepherds wisdom and the strength to equip this body for this good ministry. May the May the fullness of Christ Jesus be present as each member contributes the necessary measure that they have received from the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a vision it is to hear read over the church that we are growing 
as living stones made alive by your Holy Spirit into a dwelling place for God. That we are to be filled with all the fullness of God as a church. That's what our children need who are with us. That's what our own hearts need as we gather week by week. That's what this town and beyond needs. We need to encounter the fullness of God. And so I pray that you would, even by this text, instruct and encourage us that as members of the body we have received the life of God that must be given, and as members of the body we often receive from the head what we need through the other members of the body. What what wisdom, what manifold wisdom that you would form your body in this way, what humility this invites us into again and again. What cross-like courage. And so I pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. I pray especially for the, for the elders of the church and those in leadership responsibilities as they continue to lead Redeeming Grace Church on this path hungering for the fullness of Christ Jesus. I pray that you would answer them uh, from the overflow of your rich kindness and mercy. Answer them beyond what they could ask or imagine for the glorious sake of your son's name. Amen.